I am excited about our, our pastors this morning. I'm excited about everything today because we have so many great things happening today. It was so great to have uh, baptism this morning. And, uh, and then towards the end of the service, we're going to get to participate in Lord's Supper together, which is always an, an honor to do that and, and a great time together when we get to participate as a family um, in the Lord's Supper. And so I hope you look forward to that as well. Uh, and then also, this is the culmination of a five-week series we've been working on uh, called Greater. And in that, we've been talking about a lot of things. And we've been talking about uh, John fourteen twelve, where Jesus says uh, that we will do greater works. We read that at the beginning of, of every sermon in this series. So let's go ahead and, and bring that up, John fourteen twelve. And when he returned to Capernaum, oh, this is, that's Mark 2, 1. We're going to get to that in just a minute. John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. This is Jesus speaking, so that's fascinating that he would say that. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And this whole series is based off of this idea that Jesus leaves his disciples with this charge that they will get to be a part of of greater works than what he did. And, and that should not rest lightly on our shoulders as followers of Christ. That we have not been given a command just to attend church. We have not been given a call to come for our own conveniences. But we've been given a call and a command to be a part of something greater than even what Jesus did in his years of ministry. That is staggering. Now obviously, we're not talking greater in quality, but greater in quantity. Because there's no way we could do greater in quality. There's absolutely nothing that's more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and so there's nothing we can do greater than that. But if unified as a church, we are all in with our time, our talent, and our treasure, I really honestly think we can be a part of something incredible. Something more than just a social gathering. And I think we're already seeing that. We see evidence of that this morning in baptism. We're already seeing that happen here, and I just want to see it continue to increase, that we continue to be a part of something greater, something powerful. And so we're going to look at a story, one of those greater works that Jesus does in Mark chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 12. If you will stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. We stand in honor of God's Word because we are convinced that this is the most powerful thing you'll ever hear from behind this pulpit is Scripture. We're convinced that it has far more to say than I have to say. And so we stand in honor of that. Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his heart that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, 
rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. God, as we dive into your word this morning, Lord, my prayer is that we encounter you. Lord, that we hear clearly what you have for us to hear, um, and that we are obedient to what it is you call us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. (coughs) All right, so several things we want to look at, but let me set up the context of what's going on here first. So Jesus... This is towards the beginning of his ministry. If you, if you read in Mark and in Luke, you get some more context of what's really happening here. So Jesus spends his 40 days um, in, in fasting and out and tempted by the, by the devil, right? And then after that, uh, he starts to do ministry and, and he, want, he starts to heal people and it really starts to create this intense paparazzi mob type following going around him. I say that because you need to understand the intensity of the situations that's happening here. This is not just a small crowd. This has gotten to where Jesus can't, if you read in Luke, this has gotten to where Jesus can't even go to desolate places without people pursuing him and coming after him. Like he can't, he's trying to sometimes leave and go be by himself and the crowds just keep following him and they keep coming after him. And a fascinating thing to me is that never in the Gospels does it praise just the crowd by itself being a crowd. See, in America, so often we get so excited about a crowd that we forget the whole point of why we would have the crowd here, don't we? And, and see, Jesus doesn't ever forget that point. He never says, oh, how exciting, I have this many people here. But he always takes them back. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons, if you read in Luke, that he continues to try to leave places and, and get evasive is because he's gotten so distracted by the signs and the miracles that he's been doing that he hasn't been able to do what he came to do, which is to preach. He came to preach the gospel, to give the good news. And so there are several times in the Luke account and, and partially in this Mark account where we see Jesus start to draw this big crowd. Then he goes, all right, I got to leave. I've I got to get out of here because it's getting to be where I can't even do what I came to do because it's, we're, we're healing so many people. And so, so now uh, he's left another desolate place. He's come back to Capernaum, which is kind of becomes his, uh, his base for, home base for a little while. Uh, it says he's come home. We don't know really what home he's at. Most likely, if you read back in uh, chapter 1, he's in Simon Peter's home. Uh, he had already healed Simon Peter's mother. Uh, mother-in-law there, and um, and so we we see that that's probably home base for him is Simon Peter's house, and so he's there, and everywhere he goes, he draws a crowd because he keeps healing people, and he, and and so they're absolutely fascinated. And at this point, if you read in the Luke account, what you'll see is at this point, actually Jewish leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, have come from all over from Judea, from Galilee, from Jerusalem. They've all come to Capernaum because they've heard about this guy that's doing crazy stuff. And he's already taught in the synagogue, uh, the revealing taught where he, he opens up the scrolls and he reads the Old Testament prophecy and says, today this has been fulfilled. Um, and it's kind of like a drop the mic type moment because he, he stands up, he reads this, and then just kind of boom, done. And then he starts to live that out. And so the context of what's going on is now he's back at Capernaum. He's most likely at Simon Peter's house. And the crowd has gathered in such intensity that nobody can even get in or near the house. And so we see in Mark 2 a greater commitment and um, some friends in Mark 2, 1 through 4. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now, if you want to know what word, you go back to Mark chapter 1, and you see uh, that he is preaching uh, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so he's preaching in this house. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic and carried, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Uh, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So we see a pretty intense commitment of these friends here, don't we? Uh, think about how radical this is, what they're doing. This is just a couple of verses that if we're not paying attention, we could just read over and not see what's really happening. But think about what's happening here. So Jesus is starting to draw these massive mob, paparazzi-type crowds around him. He's in this house. The crowd is getting so big that you can't even get in. He's been healing people everywhere. And so these guys know their friend or whatever it is. We don't know their relationships. We don't know the names. We just know they know this guy. He's paralyzed. And they think if anybody can do something, this crazy guy named Jesus probably can do something about this. And so they think, let's get him on the bed. Let's carry him. Let's get him to Jesus. And so we don't know how far they carried him. We don't know what... what all took place to get them there. But what I love is that when they get there with this guy, they see the crowd and they don't immediately go, man, what are we going to do? They don't give up. They, they meet a pretty significant obstacle here, right? This is a significant obstacle. We can't get to Jesus. The crowd is so huge, Jesus can't even get away. We can't get into him. What do we do? We just sit out here and do we wait? We wait for him to be done and, and, and come out. No, there was an urgency in their hearts, wasn't there? There was an urgency to the matter here. There was an urgency to the need to get this paralyzed man to Jesus. And so one of them, probably friends with Peter because of how impulsive he is, says, what if we dig through the roof? And I imagine the other friend who was probably the more rule-following one was like, are you crazy? Dig through the roof? They'll kick us out of here. And so the way roofs were back then is they were flat roofs, and that you would lay, uh, you would have these cross beams, and then you'd have these tiles, and then you'd have mud and straw thatched across that. And sometimes it, I mean, it was set to support good weight because sometimes you would even host uh, gatherings up on your roof. You would have people, and you would hang out up on your roof. It was flat, and so you'd have people, and you'd sit outside and on your roof and have a little party. So it was it was just not a you know just straw roof. This is a significant roof. And so there would be a ladder that would go up the side of the building. And so somehow, I don't know how, but they, with this bed and these four, uh, these four men, they carry this guy up this ladder onto this roof. And they start to dig through the tile and the straw and the mud. And you can imagine a little bit of that falling on Jesus' head while he's teaching. And everybody else wondering what's going on. But of course, Jesus is Jesus. And so he probably knows what's going on. And so they open this roof, and what's amazing is how insane the situation has gotten that nobody freaks out that somebody dug a hole in the roof. They're just like, well, that makes sense in this situation. Things are getting a little intense around here, and so all of a sudden, I mean, this is a serious flash mob type situation. They open the roof, and they lower this guy through. This is commitment. And the question I have for you is what are you willing to do to get the lost to Jesus. What, what are you willing to do to get Jesus to the lost? 
Is it just invite them to church? I mean, that's a great first step. And if you haven't been doing anything, then do that. But so often, I feel like we are halted by our inconveniences in life, and we're not willing to go to great lengths to help the lost know about Jesus. Jesus is the destination here. This isn't about healing, because as a matter of fact, when we, this young man gets, or this man gets to Jesus, the first thing Jesus does is forgive him of his sins. He doesn't even heal him off the bat, because that's far more important. It's far more important than gathering a crowd. It's far more important than physical healing. It's far more important as the spiritual healing. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It is not meant for us to come and receive only and not pour back out. The Dead Sea in the Middle East is the Dead Sea because it only receives and it doesn't put out. Stagnant water, it becomes dead. It creates such a high density of salt in there that nothing can live in the Dead Sea. It's not true that there is too much of a good thing when it comes to Jesus, but there is too much of only receiving a good thing. You can't just receive the grace of Jesus Christ and not let it pour out of your life as well. You must also be doers of the word. 1 John 3.18 says it this way. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let it not just be things that we say and that we talk about, but let it be true of us that we love like Jesus. And let it be true not only in our words and our truth, but in our actions that we be like Jesus And then we see Jesus has a greater understanding of our needs. Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, continuing. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus knows the heart of man. We see this in John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Jesus knows your heart. We can pretend and give all the actions and talk that we want, but the truth is that Jesus knows what's really going on in your heart. He knows what's going on in the heart of this young man that's paralyzed. He knows what's going on in the heart of the four men that brought him, and he knows what's going on in the heart of these scribes and Pharisees that are questioning them in his heart. 
I love this. That This is not the only time we see this in Scripture. Several times, and it's fascinating to me, we see people think things inside and Jesus answer their questions. Wouldn't that creep you out a little bit? It's like that um, AT&T commercial that they've got out right now where the guy walks into AT&T and she says, yes, we do have the iPhone. He goes, uh, what? And she goes, well, everybody's coming in for the iPhone. And before the commercial ends, she's in his head answering all these questions that he's asking in his head. Jesus is doing this with the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, understand scribes. When it says scribes, who is that? Well, they didn't have Xerox machines back then. And so to get copies of the scriptures, you had these, these men who their job was to handwrite copies of the scriptures. Now, if you handwrite something several times, what happens? You memorize it, right? I mean, eventually you know it. It said, it said of some of the scribes that they knew the, the Torah so well that you could drive a nail through their scroll and they'd tell you every letter that that nail hit. I mean, this is what these guys did for a living, is they took the Old Testament scriptures and they wrote them by hand over and over and over and over and over and over again. They were the Xerox machines. So they had such an intimate knowledge of scripture that they became not only requested for their skills to be able to write, but also they became experts of the scriptures. They became people that you went to if you wanted to know what do the scriptures say about this because chances are they had it all right here. And so when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, they are absolutely appalled because even in their mind, the Messiah would not be somebody who could forgive sins because only God could forgive sins. And you have to understand in their mind, they knew a Messiah was coming, but they had a different idea of who the Messiah would be. They thought the Messiah would be just an anointed man like Moses, and that that anointed man would then take a socio-political stance and reestablish Jews in Israel on their throne of David and reestablish their kingdom and their, and their level of prominence. And so in, in their mind, it was going to be a socio-political move here, and you've got Jesus showing up, and not too long ago, he's in the synagogue reading prophecies and saying that this has now been fulfilled, and now he's doing things totally a different way, which is why we've got scribes and Pharisees from all over the land have come to this little town of Capernaum. And many of them are gathered tightly in this building as this hole gets dug in the roof, And a man gets lowered down. And Jesus' first response is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this, this is good news. Because listen, physical healing is good. It's a good thing, and we pray for it often. But if you don't have spiritual healing, it's useless. There's, there's no point in any of this if we don't see that Jesus is the one that can pardon our sins. That's the whole point. The whole point is the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus, intentionally stirring the pot here a little bit, says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, in this one statement, he does many things. In this one statement, he disturbs all the scribes and the Pharisees because it's blasphemous unless he is God, which he is. So he's establishing somewhat his deity in a vague, kind of subversive way here. 
But then also, he's bringing ultimate comfort to this man that's paralyzed. Because he knows more important than him not being paralyzed is him having his sins forgiven. And so, we see a greater understanding of what's important. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says this, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Forgiveness of sin and healing of the land go hand in hand. And one of the things we say all the time here is that we want to be a beacon of hope in a world of darkness. There is a lot of darkness and a lot of brokenness around us, ladies and gentlemen. Now, we can help meet some felt needs. We can feed the hungry. We can help clothe the homeless uh, and, and, and give them shelter. We can do all these sorts of things of meeting needs, and we should. But if we don't do that with the cause of the gospel driving it, then we're no different than any other charity organization out there. And we are not a charity organization. We are the heralders of truth, of the greatest healing that anyone can receive. And it's that of Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater than that. And so we humble ourselves. We pray for our city, and he will heal our land. Jesus is the cure. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. It's all about Jesus. Now, a funny thing about this story, I was talking with a friend recently, and he pointed this out to me. Um, if you've been a part of this greater series, you know that part of this is, at the end of this service, we're asking you to bring commitment cards. And we've got these commitment cards, and we've asked all of our church family to prayerfully be led to fill one of these out. And it's on a financial commitment of what you intend to give in 2015 and 16. I'm not going to see these cards. I'm not going to know what you wrote down. Um, But we've talked about how uh, finances is an awkward thing to talk about in the church. But one of the things that we don't think about is that there are a lot of expenses we don't think about. Uh, During baptism this morning, uh, one of the questions we've had, because if you've seen baptisms we've done here recently, what's one thing everybody says every time they get in the water? Ooh, it's cold. We finally got the water heater fixed. That costs some money. Yeah, that that costs some money, man. And so one of the things that somebody pointed out to me about the story is at the end of this incredible story, it says that uh, in the last verse, and he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. And it's just an amazing story. And then it goes to the next story. You know what we miss? There's now a hole in Peter's roof. Somebody has to fix that hole, right? I mean, what a great story. I mean, what a great reason to have a hole in your roof. But still, at the end of the day, Jesus kind of messed Peter's life up, didn't he? I mean, Jesus shows up, heals his mother-in-law, tells him he's not going to be a fisherman anymore, and leaves a hole in his roof. Ministry is messy. 
Ministry doesn't always go smoothly. Ministry doesn't always go by procedures. Ministry doesn't always go the way we intend it to go. And sometimes you have to dig a hole in the roof. And then when it's all said and done, somebody has to fix that roof. And so you may say, Pastor, why are we spending five weeks talking about this? And why are you asking for a card? Well, we've got some holes in the roof. Not really any holes in the roof. There might be. I don't think so. But we've got things that we're already working on. We're fixing fences around the playground. We're fixing gas lines in the kitchen. We're fixing up children's worship rooms. We're, we're fixing air conditioning problems. We're, listen, there, there's more to this than Sunday morning. Sometimes messy ministry leaves a hole in the roof. As a family, we're just asking you to help with that. Now, in your own life, if you do ministry correctly, it's going to end up leaving some holes in your roof too. If you do ministry correctly in your life, even outside of what you do here on Sunday morning, if you live your life in an open-handed way, like we've been talking about this whole series, you are going to have some holes in your roof as well. It's going to cost you. You're going to have to sacrifice personal things. But you get to be a part of something greater. Your neighbors may need something you have. And biblical wisdom shows us that the best thing we can do is then impart that to them. And so I'm not asking you to only be generous here at the church. I'm asking you to be generous in your everyday lives. In the way that you do life, be known as somebody with open hands for the cause of the gospel. We also see Jesus establish a greater authority. Verses 9 through 12. Jesus says, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That part is Mark writing that in. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. You might know what that already says. And Jesus came and said to them all, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. So the therefore is because of that authority that Christ has. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus establishes a greater authority here. The reason that the scribes and the Pharisees are upset, as we've discussed, is because he says that sins are forgiven. And who can forgive sins but God? And so he then says, is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to just say rise and get up? You've already seen me heal people. You've already seen that. You've already seen me heal lepers. You've already seen me heal other paralyzed people. You've already seen me heal other people. This is what you haven't seen yet. And what it's really all about. And that Jesus does have this authority. Now the beauty of that is, is that Jesus is the one that we have sinned against. 
We may sin against each other. We may cause problems with each other. But ultimately, what we've done is we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And he has every right to drop wrath on us. But out of his unbelievably rich mercy and grace and love, he forgives. He forgives. He's the only one that has the authority to do that. You can't be good enough on your own. You can't do enough. And so, what I don't want you to hear through this series is be a better person, give more money, spend more time at church. That's, that is not the message. I really, I pray hard every week that that not be what you hear. But that what you hear is that we have an opportunity to be a part of of something that an incredible God is doing. And then my heart's desire for each and every one of you is that you fall so madly in love with Jesus that it overflows into how you manage your time and how you manage your money and how you manage the the gifts that God has given you, the abilities that God has given you, how you manage that be an overflow of your affection for Jesus Christ. And that affection only comes when we truly understand how much grace we require. When we realize that we require as much grace as a murderous child molester in prison, that we require the same level of grace that they do, when we fully grasp that reality and we think, how ridiculous is it that Jesus loves us the way he does? I mean, it's scandalous the way that Jesus loves us. He should not love us this much. But he does. And out of his affection for you, my desire is that your affection for him will grow. And out of the growth of your affection, you will become more open-handed with your life. You will realize that the sphere of influence God has given you is for Him, for His glory. Your story, all the things that have happened to you in your life, good and bad, the things that you have come through, the mistakes that you have made, all can be used for God's glory and the advancement of His kingdom. You, He has all the authority, but then He passes it on to you. You get to be the avenue through which Jesus continues to reconcile the world to himself. What an incredible opportunity. And so as your pastor, yes, I do challenge you that that should shape the way you handle your money. It should shape the way you handle and manage your time, and it should shape and handle the way that you handle the things that God has gifted you with, the abilities he's given you, the spiritual gifts he's given you, the talents he's given you. It is not for your own advancement, but for the advancement of his kingdom. And I'm convinced that if we can go all in together, we can see something happen here that maybe nobody here has ever seen anything like. In the last verse, oh, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Look, that's my desire. My desire is that this church be a part of something on the west side that nobody's ever seen before. And and that it ignite it in other churches as well. Because this isn't about Hibernia at Hyde Park. 
This is just about his kingdom. I, I was talking recently with a friend that is uh, going to be partnering with another church on the west side, doing something similar to what we're doing here. And, and they were surprised to hear me say, listen, if there's anything we can do to help you succeed, please let me know. And he goes, really, we're not too far from you. I said, oh, but we're on the same team. I want nothing more than to see every single Bible-teaching, Jesus-loving church just overfill with lost people. I, I want to see the water bill in every church go up insanely because of how many baptisms they're doing. I would rather that be the bulk of our budget. I actually have a pastor friend that he, t- he tells a story about one of the first churches he ever pastored, and he actually had that complaint. He had somebody come and tell him, Pastor, we're just doing too many baptisms. The water bill is getting out of hand. Praise the Lord. That's amazing. I hope that becomes a problem for us. I hope we have to do a giving campaign because of the water bill. Listen, I know it's awkward to talk about money and talk about giving more of your time and giving more of yourself. But it isn't about me, and it isn't about this church. This is about us seeing something that nobody's ever seen. This is about seeing God do something amazing here for His name, for His glory, about Him. This whole story, although there's a paralyzed man that gets healed, this whole story is about Jesus. This whole story is about His ability to forgive sins and to heal the sick. That's what this story is about. And this authority has been passed on to us, and it's the only reason that we exist. So are you all in? Are you ready to live your life in such a way that when onlookers watch, they go, man, there's something weird about that person. Now, some of you, they already say that for other reasons. But we're asking that it be out of your obedience to Christ that people think that you're weird. You realize Jesus was weird? He was not normal. The apostles were weird. So many times you see the scribes and the Pharisees get into conflict with Jesus because of the behavior of his disciples. Because their disciples were highly educated, dignified men. And his disciples were redneck fishermen and tax collectors. And so, so often they wouldn't go by some of the rules and they weren't as tactful or dignified as the rest. But don't you love that that's who Jesus chooses to do his greatest work through? That means there's hope for a Southern Baptist pastor named Jimbo. That maybe God could use a crazy guy like me. And I have no doubt that God could use you. And you may say, but pastor, I I don't have many gifts. I don't don't have many abilities. I don't have much time. I, I definitely don't have many resources when it comes to finances. I, I don't know that there's really much that God could do through me. You realize that you're exactly the kind of person that God loves to do the biggest things through? Exactly. That's... That's the kind of people God loves to do amazing stuff through. And I think a little church on the corner of San Juan and Lane that was nearing death may be the little thing that God chooses to do something amazing through. That's my prayer.
that we get to be a part of God doing something incredible. Let's pray.